We are going to be in John chapter 12 as well. John chapter 12, continuing. We have been studying through the book of John and just looking at some of these things. And um, um, this is the part, this is the highlight of the, of the service, not because I'm speaking, but whenever the word of God is open, this is really where we're going to really kind of lock in and spend some time because what God has to say is a lot more important than what I have to say. So we try to, at first Bible church, if that's our name, right, we try to put the Bible first and really kind of just get some things across to you. So in John chapter 12, down by verse number 36 is where we'll start. Um, there, is a, uh, there is a sorry but very sobering principle that uh, the Apostle Paul touches on when he's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says this to them. He says, Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And it's, it's kind of a sad principle, but it's sad, but it's true, uh, especially when it comes to the things of God. The more you seem to give and the more you seem to sacrifice and the more you seem to invest in people, the less they seem to give back, the less they seem to reciprocate, the less they seem to love you back. And I'm not saying that out of bitterness. I'm just saying it as a fact. And uh, nobody loved anybody more than the Lord Jesus Christ loved everybody. Amen? Can we say amen to that? We agree on that? Okay. And the more abundantly Jesus Christ loved Israel, the less they gave him back the faith he was looking for. He did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and it was like, uh, you know, then they want to kill him. It's just wild if you think about it. And in John chapter 12, verse 36, look what it says here. It says, Jesus Christ is speaking, and he says, While ye have light, um, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Verse number 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Jesus Christ did so many miracles for them, but they still wouldn't believe him. And look at verse 38. Look what he connects to it. It says, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? 700 years Before Jesus Christ would ever come, God was prophesying that very few people would actually believe on his son. That very few people would actually believe the report. That very few people would actually want to see Jesus Christ revealed to them and really understand who he was and why he came. So what I'd like to do today, hopefully be challenging, hopefully my head won't explode off my neck when I get excited, but... I'd like to look at some of the many miracles of Jesus. If you like a title, there's a title for you. The many miracles of Jesus. I'd like to look at how he loved Israel, what he did back then, but also how he loved Israel is a picture of how he loves you right here at the end of 2022. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to look at the many miracles of Jesus for this reason, to see if you are among the few who would believe God's report. Because it's easy for us to point a finger at the nation 2,000 years ago and say, look at those stiff-necked unbelievers. But every time you point a finger at somebody else, you got three pointing back at you. 
So as we look at the many miracles of Jesus that happened in Israel's day, we're going to see how they correlate to our day. And we'll see if you believe God's report. Let's pray. Lord, we we love you today. We thank you. We praise you for every folk here, every person here, every soul here. Lord, I can't meet the needs of everybody. I don't know the needs of everybody, and I'm glad I don't. But Lord, I know you can. You could speak to a heart today, Lord. You could bless a uh, bless a person today, Lord. You could save a soul today, Lord, that maybe doesn't know who you are. As the Bible says, may today be the day someone sees what you really did for them, that miracle of salvation. They might believe and trust you as their Savior today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. All right. Let's go to John chapter 2. We're going to stay very cozy in the book of John uh, chapter 2. Um, John chapter 2. We're going to look at not all the miracles. If I looked at all the miracles, we'd be here till millennium comes, but we're going to look at some of the miracles, some of the ones in the book of John anyway. Uh, John chapter 2. Number one, Jesus Christ gave the nation of Israel the promise of hope. That's what his first miracle was about. Right there in John chapter 2, look at verse number 1. And the third day, that's important, there was a marriage, that's important, in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. I want you to notice that this miracle takes place at a marriage on the third day. You ever read about when Jesus Christ said, I'm going to rise again the third day. I'm going to rise again the third day. I'm going to rise again the third day. Yeah, he was talking about the tomb, but he was also also talking about when he would rise again the third day, the third thousand years since he came. Because one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. So he came 2,000 years ago. One day has passed. Two days have passed. Almost passed. And in the third day, he's going to rise and his kingdom is going to come. And in that day, when he comes with his kingdom, there's going to be a marriage. When Jesus Christ is going to be united with his bride, the church. Is that you? Amen. Amen. Now, watch what happens. Look what happens when Jesus Christ shows up. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, that means they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. So Jesus Christ shows up 2,000 years ago, and Israel has no wine, no Holy Spirit, nothing from God above. They were dry. And in verse number 7, Jesus Christ tells them to do something. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. You see those stone water pots that were sitting around? They were empty like the emptiness of Old Testament stone tablets in their lives. It was like that old wine. That's all they had was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and it was drying them up. They were dying. They were like those water pots of stone. They were empty. And in verse number 9, look what happens. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. They're dry. They're thirsty. They're just like those stone water pots that were empty. But Jesus Christ refreshed those guests with hope. With the promise of something better at the end. You see that? 
And when Jesus Christ came to that little nation called Israel, guess what? He came to bring Israel something better at the end. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The key word is better, 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 better. Because when Jesus Christ came, he came to bring something better than that nation had never, ever known. And in the book of Matthew, when Jesus Christ was getting ready to go to the cross, you know what he said at their last supper? He squeezed those grapes into that cup. And he said, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He squeezed out that new wine, the one without hooch, into that cup, and he drank that new wine. And he says, when my Father's kingdom comes, I'm going to give you some new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. You say, what's that all about, Pat? That new wine Jesus made was a foretaste of his coming kingdom that was coming at the end. You know what that was meant to give the people? Because that's what they were waiting for, a kingdom. Now look at verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now I want you to see this. Even though Jesus Christ manifested his glory to Israel to offer them hope, who really believed his report? Few disciples? Few guys that got to see the miracle? It wasn't a worldwide revival. The whole nation didn't come storming down to Cana. A few people saw it and believed. But who hath believed the report? I want to ask you something now. Has Jesus Christ given you hope? When all your hope was dried up? When you had no promise of anything better? Did Jesus Christ promise you something better at the end? Like he promised them something better at the end? Say amen if that's you. I'm, I'm calling you out now. He has promised us something better at the end. So I want to ask you another question. Do you believe him? Do you believe on him, right? A lot of people didn't believe him back then. I know a lot of people don't believe him now, but I want to know if you have believed his report. Go to John chapter 4. Let me show you another miracle. I'm just going to, I'm going to like start slow and then there might be a pile driver at the end. I don't know, but John chapter 4. Uh, let's, go over, let's go to the second miracle, John chapter 4, verse 46. Second miracle, Jesus Christ gave Israel not only the promise of hope, but he gave them the promise of life. Want to see this in John chapter 4? Look at verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee. There he's coming back. Where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea, into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The second miracle at Cana involved the healing of a nobleman's son. Say, what does that have to do with Israel, Pat? Well, in, John, in verse 46, that nobleman is another picture of Israel. Because Israel is said to be as a prince with God. And in verse number 47, that man-child of his that was dying and at the point of death is a figure of the state of the nation. They were dying on the vine. They were withering away. That nation, like that man-child that that man had, was at the point of death. And what happens in verse 49? 49, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. I mean, I can relate to that a little bit. You know, you ever had a child who's sick? You could relate to that man's heart a little bit. You could see the, the mercy he's pleading for here. Verse number 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. 
And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, he met, his servants met him and told him, saying, Can you just see them? Can you see them running down the avenue, jumping up and down and screaming, Thy son liveth! Thy son liveth! Thy son liveth! Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. I want you to notice that with only the power of his word, Jesus Christ restored life to that dying child. Jesus Christ began to amend that dying child. What, was he, what is that a picture of? That with just the words that he had from his father, Jesus Christ was trying to restore a dying nation, try to amend a withering nation. And in verse 53, the rest of the verse says, and himself believed in his whole house. Amen. But I want to ask you this. Even though the nobleman believed, that's a blessing. Even though his house believed, that's a blessing. How come more didn't believe the report? You don't think they told people. You don't think they spread it around. The whole neighborhood must have known that this kid is about to die, and now he's healed. And all I have recorded is that the house believed, but I don't know about the town believing. I don't know about the revival sweeping through. I don't know about anything else happening. Who hath believed his report? Let me ask you a question. Has this book given you life? when something precious in your life was about to die? He said, maybe it was my soul, but maybe it was your marriage. Maybe it was your family. Maybe it was your sanity. Maybe it was some of the million things that occupy us. Maybe things have weighed down upon you and you felt like I'm sick. I'm at the point of death. I don't know how to get any help. I don't know how to get any strength. You know what? Somebody showed you a Bible and like somebody hooking up the circuit breakers to your soul, something came alive that was dead. A marriage got healed. A relationship got restored. A family got put back together. Something happened. You know what? That's the power of this book. And many of us can testify to the power of this book that it just as helps us, it 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 helps us, but I want to know, hey, if that's you, do you believe it now? Do you believe the book now? Do you believe it as earnestly as when you had that sick child in the bed? Do you believe it as earnestly when you stared in the mirror in the morning and said, Lord, how am I going to get through this day? Do you believe it now as you sit here in comfort and relative ease? God says, who hath believed our report? Amen. Go back to John chapter 5, right next verse right there. I want to say something else that Jesus Christ gave that little nation that they didn't love him back. Jesus Christ gave that little nation the promise of strength, the promise of power, the promise that they could walk again. Look at John chapter 5, verse number 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, weak folk, powerless folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity and uh, which had an infirmity and uh, which was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. I want you to notice that kind of like that impotent man, the nation of Israel was sick and helpless when Jesus Christ arrived. Just impotent. We couldn't even stand on their own two feet, faltering. Look what happens in verse six. 
When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Can you see that poor man's situation? That man wanted to be made whole, but he just couldn't help himself. He says, I want to get in the water. I want to get healed. I want to walk again. I want to have strength. I want to have joy. I want to have peace. But I just, I just can't seem to get it. Have you ever been there? I just want to get victory, God. I want to be strong again. I want to be able to walk again. I got all this stuff weighing me down. I feel so powerless. I just want to, God, but I just can't seem to get it. That's, I think, a lot of people. People struggling with, 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 with depression. People struggling with heartache. People struggling with addictions. I know they don't want to be where they are. They don't want to stay there. Some of them just want to get off that merry-go-round. They want to get off that rat wheel. They want to get victory. They want to smile again. They want to have joy again. They want to have peace again. They don't want to be sitting there fretting and hurting themselves. And they just can't seem to get what they're after. And look what Jesus does in verse number 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Do you see that? There was no program. There were no steps. There was nobody had to come and help him and apply something to him. In an instant, Jesus Christ gave that man the power to walk again. The power to stand again. The power to live again. That's what he wanted. You know where he found the answer? Jesus Christ had the answer. So many people are just weighed down or feel so weak. How am I going to go on? Oh, life is so tough. You know who's got the power? Jesus Christ has the power. Jesus Christ doesn't just have the power to save your soul. Jesus Christ has the power to help you walk this life and tread these roads that, my dear friend, are getting awfully precarious, getting awfully troublesome, getting awfully scary, if you ask me. But Jesus Christ has the power to help you navigate them. You know when he did it all? He did it on the Sabbath day. <laughs> He drove those people crazy. You know what the Bible says of Jesus Christ? It says he died when we were yet without strength. Like that impotent man. He died when you had no power to stand before God, when you had no power to get to God, when you had no power to be blessed by God, when you had no access because of your sin to get to God. Jesus looked at you lying there and all that time and said, you want to be made whole? I'm going to die when you have no strength. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. And he did that all on a Sabbath. Because the Passover, when he died, was a Sabbath day. He was going to die on a Sabbath. You know what the Sabbath was all about? It was a day of rest. And the Sabbath pointed people to that millennial rest that was coming in the future when that nation of Israel was going to walk with God again. An impotent nation is going to be able to stand and walk with God again. In verse number 10, look at the reaction. How do you feel about that miracle? Oh, that's only Andrew. How do you feel about that miracle? Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing God that gives you power. The rest of you are like, am I supposed to answer now? Is this a participation or is this rhetorical? I don't, not, where's the sign? All right, you can answer whenever you want. Yell, scream, shout, throw something at me. I'm good. I'll teach tomorrow at 7 a.m. I'm fine. All right, verse number 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, this is amazing. Wow, we got to get this Jesus in to speak to our synagogue because he can give people the power to walk. Oh, this is amazing. I'm going to bring some of these other people that are ill. Oh, this is amazing. I think this one might be the Messiah. Is that what they said? No. Verse number 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. 
It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. You can almost see their noses bleeding. They got their heads so stuck up in the air so high, right? This guy's walking down the street, you know? You know, he's like, these boots were made for walking. That's just what they'll do. And one of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. And he's just walking around. He's like, I haven't walked. This is amazing. And they're like, what are you doing walking? You're supposed, this is a Sabbath day. You religious hypocrite. You bigoted, two-faced, lying snake. You want to jerk those people. I, I can't, you know, can I tell you something? If you think this is religion here this morning, we hate religion. Right? The Bible is against religion. I like God. I like Jesus Christ. I want a relationship. This ain't no organized religion. Now, so I'll say ain't to emphasize that it ain't no organized religion. Because the organized religion is seeing the guy walk around the hill and going, you didn't follow ordinance 2A.613. You know, you're walking on a Sabbath day. You need to go back to being crippled. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? Even though that lame man walked, you look at verse number 18. They wanted to kill Jesus Christ. Here's a novel idea. Why not believe Jesus Christ? How about that? Does that sound like a smarter thing to do? Can I ask you this now? Let me turn it around to you. Has Jesus Christ given you strength when you couldn't help yourself? You ever felt so weak you couldn't stand? And the Lord put some strength in those ankle bones so you could stand up and praise God? Has anybody felt that? I felt that. I've stared at some stuff in the last year or so. I've been down some dark valleys. We've all had some things that are scary, and it feels like something just came across, and life just came and cracked you in the gut and busted you in the knees, and you're like, God, I don't even know how I can go on. I don't even know how I can live another day. And you just crawl up into that Bible, and you weep on those pages, and all of a sudden just something comes out, and you get some strength in your legs. You know what? The Lord says, rise up and walk, and you're able to walk just one more day. Lord, if I could just get through one more day, that's all I need. And the Bible says a just man falls seven times and rises up again. And the Holy Spirit says to you, get up, brother. Get up, sister. It could be today. I could be coming today. Rise up one more time as Pastor Dean always taught us back in Staten Island. And that's what he does. He does that for us. He gives us that strength. So why do you doubt the report? Why are we so skeptical of God's promises? He strengthened you. He helped you. We're just like Israel. Eh, it's Tuesday now. Sunday was fun, but now it's Tuesday, right? We're strange people. Where the more abundantly he loves, the less we love him back. Go to John chapter 6. Let me show you something else our great Savior did, another miracle. I'm just showing you some of the many miracles of Jesus. You know what else Jesus Christ gave those people? He gave those people the promise of sustenance for their journey. Food for their journey nourishment for their journey. See John chapter 6, verse 5. It says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Man, he's got a great company is following the Lord, and Jesus Christ knows they have to eat. Now, that gives me a little bit of proof that there might have been some Italian in his blood. I'm only joking, right? Because we Italians know you got to eat. You go to grandma's house, she just stuffs a sub in your face. Like, you need to eat this. There's baked ziti, like, always sitting there, like water on tap. You need something. You got to eat something. Right? You just got to eat. You know, if you don't eat, if you're Italian and you don't eat, something's wrong. It's just they look at you like, you know, you're a strange person. So he's like, they got to eat. The disciples said, no, we can keep going. But he knew the crowd had to eat. And brethren, can I just stick this in there? If you're going to follow the Savior, you need to eat. 
we got way too many Christians that are running on fumes. That one verse that you get at 945 from your Bible app is not enough to keep the devil away, right? You need to kind of be saturating your mind in the word of God. You say, you're crazy about that book. You're crazy if you're not crazy about that book. This is the mind of God in words. I want to know everything he thinks about everything. I want to saturate my brain and conform it to his image. I don't want to get conformed to some knucklehead, a talking head. You want to get conformed to those idiots? No, I want to get conformed to the prince of life. So, hey, John chapter 6, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. He's saying nobody has the money to buy the bread we need. Verse number 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter, saith unto him, Simon Peter's brother saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? He says, man, we don't have the money, and nobody's got the materials to feed so great a crowd. They tried all their faculties and all their resources. So verse number 10, what does Jesus do? What he always does. Verse number 10, and Jesus said, make the men sit down. You guys tried? Nice try. Now sit down, son. Let me... Let me show you something. Let me show you I'm God, and you're just, you're just man, all right? He doesn't mean, mean arrogantly. He's just like, make the men sit down. You just rest while I show you how I work. And he keeps going. He says there, verse 10, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. So this is an entourage. And Jesus took the loaves. Now he's got five. Can you picture five loaves of bread? Five loaves of bread, right? He's holding up five loaves of bread, a basket of five loaves and two fish in it. And um, it says, uh, so the men sat down, and when Jesus took the loaves, verse 11, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. You hungry? Come get all you want. You say, Lord, come get all you need. Verse 12, when they were filled... This wasn't rationing. Jesus wasn't like, here's a little piece for you, Andrew, and here's a little piece for you, Bartholomew. He said, dig in, boys. Pass it around. You want seconds? You want thirds? Maybe you got some Italians here, some gavones? Just go around 20 times if you want. And they were stuffed, and they were sitting back, and they were probably burping and saying, man, that was good. That was the best fish and chips I've ever had in my life. And they're sitting back there, and it says, therefore, verse 13, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. You see right there? Jesus Christ provides supernatural sustenance to fill all those followers. I got my one little King James Bible on the pulpit here. I don't know how this little bit of bread is going to feed all these people, but I know that Jesus Christ can make the word of God fill all of you. You just got to get as much as you want. You can fill up as much as you want. There's no cap. There's no, oh, you got to wait for somebody else to eat. You just eat as much as you want. Get as much of that Bible as you want, and we'll help you. We'll be like those disciples passing it out in discipleship, passing it out on Thursday night, passing it out at the youth meetings, passing it out at the men's meeting, passing it out at the ladies' fellowship. We're going to try to be good disciples and pass out, but that thing is an inexhaustible oven of heaven's bread. You can get as much as you want. Praise God for that. I went to the university and I sit down the professor when it was time, office hours were closed. Okay, I'm done. You can stay up late. You can get up early and you can just get in that Bible and get everything God has for you. Have you done that? 
Well, what's the picture, Pat? Well, this feeding of the 5,000 is an amazing picture of God's ability to sustain that nation. Think about it. Like God fed them with manna in the wilderness under Moses. Like God will feed them with manna again in the wilderness during the Great Tribulation. You see, really? There's a parallel there? Um, in the future, right, when their money will be useless to buy or sell what they need under that Antichrist system, and he doesn't let them buy or sell, where are they going to get the food from, folks? Their money's going to be useless. When they won't have enough stuff to scrape together a meal. You know why? Because there's a famine coming in the Great Tribulation. There's fa- They're talking about it now. Food shortage. Food. Why? Because when the Great Tribulation comes, there's going to be a want of bread. There's going to be, a, uh, the Bible talks about like their teeth are going to be chattering together because there's not going to be enough to eat. That's all pictured right there. And in verse number 14, look what happens. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet, that you're coming to the world. They see it, and they're like, wow, this is definitely the one that God promised. This is definitely the prophet that God promised. Do you see that today? Have you been fed at all from his book today, or at all ever? So even though so many were fed, here's what I want to know. Why didn't more of them follow Jesus Christ? Where'd the 5,000 go? Nobody was around the cross. Nobody was there at the end. Oh, when he filled them, it was like, we're here for the this and the that and the Thanksgiving fellowship. We'll show up for that. We'll stuff our... If you feed them, they will come, right? It's like field of dreams, right? If you feed them, they will come. And they show up for that. But then when it comes to be a little later in Jesus' life, that 5,000 is gone. Who hath believed our report? Where'd they all go? See how strange people are. See how interesting they are. Look at verse number. I don't look at anything. Let me ask you this. Has Jesus Christ filled your belly? Better yet, has he filled your soul when it looked impossible? Let me ask you something else. Are you still following him? When the good times stop rolling, will you still follow him? When the ship starts rocking? When things look a little scary, when things look a little dark, when things look a little bleak, when it isn't all the fanfare and the excitement and the exuberation, will you follow him then? The lowly Nazarene on the way to Calvary, will you follow him then? Or are you just using him? Jesus, I need help with this, okay? Jesus, I need help with that, okay? Jesus, I need help with this, okay? And Jesus says, could you give me a little help? Whoa, 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 legalist. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to live my life. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Really? The one who laid down his life for you? The one who's always there for you? You can't be there for him at all? Mm -mm. All right, keep going. John chapter 6. Let's look a little bit there. I told you the sledgehammer is coming. John chapter 6. Let me show you something else about this. What else did Jesus Christ give them? We're hurrying along here. We're giving like some low-level flying to the book of John here. Jesus Christ gave that nation something else. He gave that nation the promise of victory. Look at chapter 6, look at verse 16. And when even was come, when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. My goodness, it looks like Jesus Christ. We read from the other gospel accounts. He sends his disciples directly into a storm without him. Yikes! Jesus, where are you? 
Jesus, hello. Jesus calling Jesus. Jesus, clean up on aisle three. Where are you, Jesus? Hey, I'm... Doctor said leukemia, Jesus. Where are you? Where are you? Family's falling apart. Jesus, hey, what's going on here? That's what's happening. Verse number 19, look what they do. They do what we do. They try to make it across on their own. So when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, that's about two and a half to three miles, they see Jesus. You know what they're trying to do? They tried to make it across, but they just couldn't do it on their own. That's like us. Heartache comes along. We're just going to pull up our bootstraps. We're going to put our nose down. We're just going to run through the line. We're just going to do that. But after a while, you get hit so many times, you can't do it anymore. You just keep getting hit. You keep getting hit. It's like, oh, Lord, I'm getting hit. I'm going through a storm, Lord. And you're trying to row. You're trying to get across. You just can't do it because the waves are beating down on you. The water's coming over the ship. The wind is pushing back at you. And you're like, Lord, I'm tired, Lord. I'm weak, Lord. I want to get to the other side. I want to pass over. I want to make it. I want the victory. But I'm just, I'm just getting tired of rowing, Lord. You ever felt that way? Well, I'm getting, Lord, I can't do this anymore, Lord. But I'm trying. You're giving it your best. But look what happens. Right when they're about to faint, they see Jesus walking on the sea. Very important that it says the sea. And drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, oh, it's such beautiful words. It is I. Be not afraid. Could you hear him calling it out? wind and water and stuff. And they're going, is that a ghost? What am I seeing over there? And it's Jesus calling out, walking on the sea. It is I. Be not afraid. Oh, what a message. Some of you got winds and waves tossing you back and forth. And you're like, is that Jesus? And I said, it's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. It's me. And you know what? Jesus comes walking victorious over the things that are against them. He's walking on the water that's flipping their boat around. He's got the wind and the sea at his disposal, and he's actually stepping on the waves because he's got power over them. He's walking on the sea. You say, what is that picture, Pat? Well, the great tribulation is coming, right? And in the great tribulation, the nation of Israel is heading into a storm, a great wind, and there are going to be great waves against them. And just when they think they're sunk... Jesus Christ is going to come walking on the sea. There's water up there, and he's going to come walking on the sea, and he's going to be coming down, and this whole parable is a picture of the victory he promised and his return that is coming soon to make everything right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Verse number 21. Look what they say. Then they willingly received him into the ship, wouldn't you? I'd be like, yo, man, over here. <laughs> You're going to sink, Jesus. <laughs> then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land where they went. I don't understand all that, because they were probably out there in the middle of the water, and all of a sudden they get Jesus in the ship, and they're safe at the shore. When you figure that out, let me know. But you might be in the middle of a storm right now, but you just get Jesus in on it, and before you know it, you'll be safe at shore, and you won't even know how it happened. Immediately, they're there. But I want you to notice something. Even though Jesus Christ delivered them, and he did, so many who saw this miracle forsook him and fled. A few years later in that garden, all those disciples that were in that ship turned tail and ran away from Jesus Christ. Even Peter, the one who actually walked 
on the water. He's the one that betrayed Jesus Christ. He's the one that like turned away from Jesus Christ. Isn't that strange? Isn't that wild? Isn't that weird? If I saw you walk on water, wouldn't I have some little bit of bona fides when I saw you do something the next time? Wouldn't I want to stick near you? Wow, this guy seems to have some serious ethos. I think this guy is worth following. They turned tail and ran. Not much different than us. Not much different than us. Hey, has Jesus Christ, you can answer out loud, but I think by now you're figuring out that I'm setting you up every time I ask you these questions. I'm setting you up. I'm outing you. Has Jesus Christ delivered you from an insurmountable storm? Has he gotten you through the last thousand valleys that you've gone through? Hey, then why won't you trust him now? Why would you turn tail and run now when he just helped you out the other million times? Why wouldn't you give him a shot now and hang with him now and not betray him now? Aren't people strange? You say, Pat, uh, this is bothering me a little bit. It's supposed to bother you. Preaching is supposed to bother you. It's supposed to ruffle your feathers because that's the only way we get better if we get shaken up a little bit. I know all the modern stuff is like, I'm just going to share a story. I'm going to share something relevant. We're just going to have a great session today and then my talk is finished. You know, you can have some coffee in the, in, the, in, the, in the lobby. You know, I get it, but the Bible talks about preaching, preaching, preaching. And, and, and we preach here because we want to help you in the long run. Let's go to John chapter 9. Let me keep going here. We just got a few more stops left. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. The Murphy Farm is open till late tonight. John chapter 9, John chapter 9. You know, you know what else Jesus Christ gave those people? He gave those people the promise of vision. So important to see, isn't it? Somebody gave a poll one time and said, if you had to lose one of your five senses, which one would you not want to lose? Guess which one they said first. Nobody wants to lose their sight. I got hit with a thorn bush in my left eye. I'm legally blind in my left eye. I understand a little bit of eye doctors and, and like losing your sight, the threat of losing your sight, and the threat of losing your eye. I've got some intimate relationship with that. Sight is precious. Just to be able to look upon your child's face, to look upon that Bible, to look at the world, right? It's precious. It's precious. Sight is precious. It's a blessing to be able to see. I got a friend at work. I asked you to pray for her. She had this surgery. They kind of botched it. She can't see. She's having double vision. She's throwing up. She's a mess. She's depressed. She's down. She's lost. I really feel for her because I know what it's like to have that fear of not being able to see. But you know what? The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. Man, you trip and fall and break your neck if you can't see around anything. And Israel, by the time Jesus Christ showed up, had lost sight of God. They'd gotten so into their rituals and religions and things and feast days and Pharisees and Sadducees and spinning their phylacteries and all that stuff. They lost sight of God like we all do. Amen, Pat, you're right. I'm not just going to point the finger at Israel because we're the same way. We lose sight of God in the busyness of life and the affairs of life and the cares of this world. We lose sight of him. But look what, you know, Jesus Christ never loses sight of you, even when you can't see. Chapter 9, verse 1, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, that man who was blind from his birth, he couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could see him. Amen. And you know what? Even though you might be blind right now, even though you might not be able to see right now, guess what? God sees you. And as he passed by, and he's got this great plan of redemption, and this great coming kingdom, and all this great stuff coming, guess what? He's not so great that he won't stop and keep his eye on you. He still sees you, even though he's got this great thing that he's doing. You're part of that plan. What a savior, what a savior. He passes a man who was born blind. You say, what is that picture? He pictures the nation. 
born into the darkness of idolatry. You know what Israel was when God found them? They were, the Bible says they were polluted in their blood. They were just a little group of people surrounded by pagans and idolaters, and that's who they were. And God said, when I found you, you were blind, Israel, and I gave you sight. I said, live. You know what else it also pictures? It pictures the sinner, you, born into the blindness of sin. That's where God found you, blind as a bat. You didn't know God from the devil, from Genesis, from Revelation, from right, from wrong. And we know what God, Jesus Christ, does. He does that thing with the clay and he heals this man. And look what happens in verse 24. Look what happens in verse 24. Then again, called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, though, whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? The religious people again got their underwear in a knot. They're freaking out. They're blowing a gasket. Their blood pressure is like 200 over 100. They're going crazy because a man can see. Because a man's eyes have been opened and they're barraging him with questions. And that man is a great guy. Can't wait to meet that guy in heaven. Because that man's like, look, I don't understand all the answers, but I just know I can see now. I don't understand about the pagans in the bush who never saw a white man give them the gospel. I don't know about this thing over here. I don't know about that. I don't know about this. I don't know about why there's evil in the world. I don't know about why my son got diagnosed with cancer last year. I don't know all that. But I know one thing. Amen. 24 years ago, my eyes opened up. Amen. Did your eyes open? I don't know why bad things happen all the time. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. I don't know the end from the beginning. I don't know the first and the last. But I can tell you, I, got, I know one thing. I may not be dumb, but I'm stupid. But I know one thing I got. I can see. I can see. I remember when the dungeon got flamed with light, and I could see. I didn't see before, but I could see. And for somebody to come along and say, well, what about, you know, how about there's these vestigial organs that we see? And, you know, you got, bleh, 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 bleh. yeah, thank you very much. I'll give you an answer for that later. But right now, you can't unconvince me that my life has been changed. You can't untalk me out of the fact that I was going this way before, and now I'm going this way, that I remember what it was like to be in the dark, and all of a sudden now, I understand why I'm alive. Amen. You can't put a price tag on being able to see why you see. And look what happens, verse 34. 34. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Even though they knew an amazing miracle had happened, even though they saw it with their own eyes, they were blind, and they cast him out. So what does Jesus do? He finds him in the next verse, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You know what I think he did? I think he got down just like this. And I think he got down right on his hands and his feet and said, Praise God, praise you, praise the Lord, praise Jesus, praise the Son of God. You know why? Because his eyes had been opened. Have your eyes been opened? Do you see clearly now what you couldn't see before? You see how to get to heaven. You see what life is about. You see what the future holds. You see how to do things. You see when you can watch the news and figure out what's really going on in the world. You could see now. You can't put a price on being able to see and have that vision. Hey, has he turned you from darkness to light? 
from the power of Satan unto God? Has he forgiven your sins? Yes, yes, yes. Are you worshiping him? That's what that guy did. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. How come more of us aren't flat on our face before him, saying, praise God, praise God, bless the Son of God? Go to John chapter 11. Let me give you just this one more miracle here. John 11. You see a progression here? Seems like people are getting nastier. John 11. Jesus Christ gave those people the promise of a new beginning. Amen? The promise of a, of a new start. Now, Lazarus is dead. We're not going to go back over this. We've talked about it a lot recently. Lazarus is dead. And in verse 39, by the time Jesus Christ gets to Lazarus's grave, the stone has been sealed for four days. See 39? Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Four days. Prophetically, four days. Prophetically, 4,000 years of death reigning. And the people God had been preparing, sitting in the shadow of death. That's the picture at Lazarus' tomb. I know it really happened, but God is so wise, he took the stuff that really happened and he lets it be pictures of stuff for you to figure out stuff 2,000 years later. And the law that was written on stone tablets was like that stone on that tomb. It was separating them from a holy God. It was separating them from a new beginning. It was separating them. It was an impasse. So what did Jesus do? Verse number 40. Jesus saith unto her, like he says to us, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Jesus Christ takes away the stone and gives Lazarus a new beginning with his words. He was dead, and now you get a chance to live again, Lazarus. You ever been there? Dead. Now you got a chance to live again. Dead and a chance to live again. And look at their reaction. Lazarus, this is amazing. I want to have you over for dinner, Lazarus. I'm going to order some pizza. Let's get Dinino's. We're going to have some pizza. Let's get Lazarus at the table. Oh, my goodness, Lazarus. They're running. Lazarus is alive. Lazarus is alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nope. Verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. Every time you see council written like that in the Bible is bad. C-O-N-C-I-L. A council and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. You lying sack of you know what. You little thief. You little monster. And in the next chapter, they're plotting not just to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus too. Wow, those dignified, pious, God-fearing serpents and generation of vipers. Instead of calling on Jesus Christ, they're conspiring to cancel their king. We're going to cancel him. Like they cancel people now, right? We're going to cancel you, cancel culture. They're going to cancel Jesus Christ. Isn't that foolish? That's like canceling oxygen. Right? That's like canceling water. It's can- try to cancel the air. I'm going to get the air out of here. There's no air in here. Yeah, you're going to die without any air in here. 
And if you cancel Jesus Christ, guess what? You're dead. And you're not just dead. You're going to go to hell without Jesus Christ. You can't cancel. You can't cancel the one who made the one that's trying to cancel him. That's insanity. That's what the Bible says. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. It's like watching a thousand ants scream at you while you step on them. They're looking at you and you're just like, what are you getting so upset about, guys? I just moved the picnic basket over here. Are you crazy? And they're rallying up all these ants, getting up on this little hill. They're three inches off the ground. That's like every ant in your neighborhood got three inches off the ground. And they're sitting in this monstrous army of ants. Now, like, we got them now. Yeah, we got them. Yeah, we got the big ants and the little ants. We got, you know what they sound like to you? That's what they look like. And all you would do is laugh. Just look at these. Look at these ants. And when the whole world gets together and says, we're going to get rid of God. We're going to get rid of the Bible. We're going to outlaw Christianity. We're going to make that hate speech, hate crime. You know what God's got to do? God's got to say, like, that's funny, man. That's funny. I'm the one that made the alphabet you're using. I'm the one that made the oxygen you're breathing. And you look like those ants. That's what you look like to them. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That's the only thing I could think of to give you a good analogy. Hey, has Jesus Christ given you a new start? Has he given you a new beginning? Has he taken the law out of your way? The Bible says when he went to the cross, he took the law out of the way. All those thou shalt not that got between you and God that said, sinner, 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 sinner. You know what? God said, I'm going to take those out of the way. I'm going to nail those to the cross so I can have a relationship with you. Hey, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. New beginning, new start, new life. Well, let me ask you something. How are you responding? You're coming close? Or are you trying to cancel Christ? Well, I don't want him in my relationships. I don't want him in my wardrobe. I don't want him in my free time. I don't want him on my Sundays. I don't want him on my Thursdays. I don't want him on my Tuesdays. I don't, you know what? I just don't want him. And we just cancel, cancel. I don't want him in my job. I don't want him in my business dealings. I don't want him in my marriage. I don't want him in the way I raise my kids. And we just cancel him. We're trying to cancel the one that gave us the life we enjoy. Like a bunch of angry ants screaming at the sky. Last one. Go to John chapter 12 right there. You know what? We just looked at seven miracles in John. You know what these many miracles are all about? The many miracles of Jesus we're talking about. The many miracles of Jesus all point to the greatest miracle he performed on Calvary. Look at John chapter 12, 12. I'm not going to read it, but in John 12, 12, Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem for his final week. They adore him when he walks in. They're going to scream for his blood when he's getting ready to walk out. They're going to betray him, and they're going to crucify him. This is for his own people that are celebrating him now, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In a few days, those priests and Pharisees are going to get them to scream, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He knows that. And in verse 24, all the way down to 32, Jesus Christ is alluding to his death. He's alluding to his death that's going to happen at the end of that week, at the end of his earthly ministry. And then right there in 37, the Holy Spirit connects Israel's rejection of his miracles to their ultimate rejection of his cross. He says in 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, past tense, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report. 
Go to, go to Isaiah. Let's finish in Isaiah 53. Let's look at that. Let's look at that prophecy. You say, why do you get excited about the Bible? What other book tells the future? The lady on the corner who, who shuffles the cards and tells you you're going to have a burger tomorrow? That's who you're going to trust? The Madame Blavatsky who sits there and throws something in water and watches the way the oil and the entrails move? That's who you're going to follow? The lady who looks into that crystal ball that she bought at Walmart and charges you $5 for a reading and traces the lines on your palm? That's the one you're going to follow? You're going to follow that? And not the one who put it in sixth grade English and told you the end from the beginning? Are you crazy? I don't know. People are strange, man. People are strange. Look at this. Isaiah 53 is written 700 years before there was even a cross. Before people even knew what a cross was. Before there was even a Rome. Before, before any of this stuff happened. They're writing about the suffering Savior hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. You know why a Jew now doesn't want to read the book of Isaiah? Because he knows. Some people know, and they got to cancel that. Don't read that Isaiah 53. Don't read that Psalm 22, because you might see something that might say, isn't that like Jesus? Kick him out. Get him out of here. Isaiah 53, verse 1, is a prophecy of the suffering Savior made 700 years before Calvary. It says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You say, what about this suffering Savior? Who are you talking about, Pat? Who are you talking about? Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You say, who is this one they were prophesying about? He's prophesying when God would lay all your sins on the sinless Son of God. When God would take all your guilt and all your lies and all your lust and all your anger and all your unbelief and all that, all that bad stuff you did that God is seeing and all the punishment you deserve, he's going to take it and he's going to put it on Jesus Christ to carry. He's going to put it on the Savior. You know what that means? You've got no guilt that you have to carry. You don't have to carry that guilt. Stephen sang it this morning. I'm glad he started with that song. Shake off thy guilty fears. I know the past can come back up and the past can come back up, but if you're saved, say amen. Amen. Your sins are not on you anymore. They are on the Savior. You don't have to carry them anymore. You don't have to bear the burden anymore. You don't have to be weighed down by the guilt anymore. And if you're not saved, guess where your sins are? They're still on you. There were three people at that, on, that, on that hill, Golgotha. There was a Savior who had sin on him, but no sin in him. You had a thief that had sin in him, but no sin on him. And then you had a, a thief that had sin in him and sin on him. One went to hell, one went to heaven. And there's the one in the middle. Which thief are you? You may have sin in your members. You may have sin in your members. But guess what? God does not impute sin to you when you're saved because that sin has been taken off you and put on Jesus Christ. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. Look at verse 5. How did he do that? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He's talking about when God's servant would take all the anguish you deserve. The stripes weren't the stripes of a zebra. Those are stripes of a cat and nine tails just whipping across his back and making long those furrows, those long whips that had those pieces of animal teeth or glass or stone, and they just take that bear back and they whip it and it would catch and then rip. And the psalmist wrote, they made long my furrows upon my back. And with his stripes, 
we are healed. That means there's no payment we have to make. There's no sacrifice I have to bring. There's no suffering I have to endure. There's nothing I have to give. It's already been paid for. He already took the beating. I don't have to go to hell. He went to hell and back for me. What a Savior. Verse number four. Surely he hath borne our our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know what else that's about? When the man of sorrows would taste death, that he might bear your burdens. That means you don't have to carry your guilt. You don't have to make a payment. And you never have to die, as far as God's concerned, because he tasted death for you. That's quite a savior. That's quite an offering. Who hath believed that report? You say, my goodness, if Jesus Christ would do all that, why wouldn't everyone believe the report? Why wouldn't more people trust him? I mean, eternal life as a free gift. Isn't that strange? And you could explain that to somebody, and they would look at you and say, oh, that's very nice. I'll think about it. That depends the way you see it. Well, that's the cultural nuances that you bring in with your, you know, Judeo-Christian Western mindset. No, You want to go to heaven or hell? What are you trusting to get you to heaven? You want to get to heaven? Trust Jesus Christ. You want to go to hell? Trust something else. It's that simple. Somebody said a long time ago, and it's pretty simple. I'm not talking about an ideology. I'm not talking about a creed. I'm not talking about a membership you have to keep up. I'm talking about what's your payment for sin? When you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? What's your answer? This is interesting. I went to church. No, what's your answer? I did good deeds. No, what's your answer? I trusted the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and you said that was enough. All right, let him in. That's what I'm talking about. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why we get excited. That's why we stand on the corners. That's why we go to the fairs. Why? Because that's good news. That's a good report to share with the world. But why don't more people believe that? Why do more people care about that? Why do more people trust him? The answer is in verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He said, Jesus Christ did so many miracles for them, and the greatest miracle of all, he went to hell and back for you. Why do more people believe him? Because you despise him. That's what the Bible says. You know what despise means? You think little of him. You scorn him. You disdain him. You think low of him. It says in that verse, he is despised, present tense, and he was despised, past tense. They thought little of him then, and people think little of him now. And that's why more people don't believe. That's why more people don't want him. That's why more people aren't interested. You know, my son CJ, if you're a visitor here, I haven't talked about him a lot. I'm trying not to, but it's still on my mind, uh, especially when he's sick from a spinal tap. My son CJ's been going through leukemia treatment for, I don't know, since last June, June 2021. You know what? Last October, Jason and Rachel can attest to this because they were on site. When I got the call that the bone marrow was clear and he had no leukemia left down there, I jumped about six feet off the ground. I was running around. I was calling everybody up. I was excited. But you know what? He's had a lot of tests since then. You know what happens? You get used to being clear. 
You get used to the good report. And I don't get as excited anymore when the blood comes back good. Because I'm getting used to the fact that he's healed. I'm getting used to the fact that he's okay. I'm getting used to the fact that he can play basketball again and run circles around me and do all the stuff that he used to do. You know what happens? I start despising the good report. I start not esteeming it. Oh, man, those days. Some of us have been there, right, brother? Those days when you're waiting for a scan or something like that, and you're hanging on the phone, and your stomach's in knots. People saw me at work. They said, you look like you were going to die. I was going to work and trying to put a smile on my face for these kids, and inside I was dying, waiting for that phone call to come, waiting to hear what the results of that, that biopsy were, the results of that bone marrow test. You know what? And I was hanging on every word. Every phone, made, every phone call made me jump. Every, I was just on edge, praying, pleading, crying, weeping. But now he's been okay for a while. And you just like, you get used to being okay. You start to think less of it. Not praying with the same urgency. Not pleading with the same zeal. Not hanging on every word like you did before. Not staring at your Bible with tears in your eyes. Looking at every page for God to say something to you. To calm the storm inside. You know why? You start despising the goodness of God. You start neglecting it. And you stop trusting. You stop learning. You stop leaning on him. You stop looking for him. I hope that's not us today. Because the many miracles of Jesus are supposed to make your faith increase. That's what God wants in return. He did all this to you. Why? So you give him your money. Keep your money. Buy yourself a burger. I don't care about you. Right? You know what he says? He did all this for you. Why? So your faith would increase. So you could trust him more. So if you're not saved, you'd be saved. And if you are saved, you'd get a little closer. Who hath believed his report? You know, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sends these spies into the promised land. You know what they bring up? They bring back an evil report. They bring back an evil report that contradicts what God said, and almost everybody believes him. They have, everybody believes the ten spies, and nobody believes the minority that said, no, God can do it, God can do it. We always want to believe the evil report. But God sends his son to bring a good report, and hardly anyone believes him. Why? Why? Because the more abundantly you're loved, the less you love in return. That is the sad principle of the human race. The more abundantly you're loved and all God did for you, you're like, yeah, he always does good things for me. You just despise it. You despise it. But you know what's amazing? And I'm about to pray in a second here. God did all this knowing only a few of you would believe. And God did it anyway. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. God did it anyway. So our prayer today is let's pray the many miracles God's done in your life might compel you to trust Jesus Christ even more. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Let's stand together, shall we?